Well, go ahead and turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 16. I had planned on starting Philippians, the first couple of verses, but we're going to take Acts 16 as a historical section of how Paul comes to write the letter to the Philippians. So this year, we're going to be looking at uh, next year, right? We're going to be starting Philippians, and Philippians has an overtone of joy. Paul says, have joy, rejoice always. It's a, a consistent theme that Paul is giving to the people that live in Philippi. But the thing about Paul's joy is it's not just joy, it's joy in the centrality of Jesus. It's joy that comes through Jesus being the center of everything. It's not just joy for joy's sake, it's joy because Jesus is at the center of your life. So today, as I said, we're going to be looking at all of the history leading up to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And so may this be a reminder to us as we look at Acts 16 today of how intimately God orchestrates his divine plans in our life. We're going to see that throughout chapter 16. Where we go, who we meet, what we say, what we don't say, and who God chooses to save. Let's pray and we'll jump into Acts 16. Lord, we ask that knowing that you are all wise and all powerful, Lord, that you have sent your spirit to those who have believed in your son, Lord, we ask that you would, through your spirit, teach us what we need to know today. Lord, we ask that you would teach us about who you are. Teach us about your divine guidance, the way that you choose to work. Lord, give us understanding into who you are that we might know how to serve you better, that we might know how to worship you better, that we might proclaim your good news with boldness, that we might look at 2024 as an opportunity to be the year that we chose to surrender fully to you, to commit everything we have, everything that we are, everything that we do to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have a multimedia presentation, most likely. And we are going to... Ooh, it works. So we're going to start by leaving Philippi and going to the island of Thassos. Okay, this island of Thassos is in the northern part of the Aegean Sea, which is north of the Mediterranean Sea. It's in the northern part of Greece, and Greece has lots of islands. This is one of them that is about as far north as islands in Greece go. About a hundred years after Hosea wrote and lived and prophesied, the Greek people settled this island of Thassos. When they got here, they quickly became rich. There is gold and silver throughout the island and throughout the northern part of the Aegean Sea, even up into Philippi. This island is a small island. To drive around the whole thing, it takes a couple of hours. To drive straight across takes less than an hour. And yet this island produced 
an equivalent in today's dollars of about $650 million annually in gold from this small island. So the settlers of Thassos, these Greek people, quickly became rich. And since there were so many gold mines, since there was so much wealth to be had, they weren't the only ones that wanted it. So the island of Thassos quickly became a contested war zone. Everybody wanted to have rights to the gold mines. All right, so here we are. And let's go over to Thassos. Go down. So this is where Thassos is, way over here. Okay, so that's the island we were just looking at. And on the northern part of the island, the capital city is right here, the city of Thassos. And if you look, all of these white spots throughout the island are gold and silver mines. So they've just dug the island up everywhere that they've found gold. So there's lots of gold mines all throughout the island. Okay, so when we go from Thassos, which is what Paul is, uh, Paul settles or passes right by Thassos, and we go over to Neapolis, which is in Acts 16, where we're going to get, Paul leaves and takes a boat and lands in Neapolis, which the name Neapolis just means new, Nea, Neo, Apolis, Paulus, city. So it means new city. It was a very common Greek name because every time they settled a new city, it would be called Neapolis. So the name of the ancient Neapolis is now Kavala. So we'll look at Kavala. Now this is where Paul first lands in Kavala. The interesting thing is the people that were in Thassos saw the wealth that the island provided, and they started to expand. They built a huge navy, and they expanded just right outside of their border, which was this island right here. This was Thassos. And then they sailed over to Neapolis, and they started digging for gold. And they found more and more gold. So they continued to expand, and they went up to Philippi. So they went right up here to Philippi, and they settled at the foot of this mountain. Actually, that's modern Philippi. Ancient Philippi is right over here. So ancient Philippi settled right at the foot of these mountains, and they found more gold there as well. About four years after the Thassians settled in Philippi, someone else wanted the gold, and King Philip of Macedonia came and conquered the land and then gave the city his name. So Philippi is named after King Philip of Macedonia, and that was sometime in the 350s BC that he came in and conquered Philippi. And this all has a point, I promise. It's not just fun history and cool Google Earth. 
So this is where Paul would have spent time. This is the ancient city of Philippi. And there's a few things that we want to point out here. Let me go back to 2D. Number one is the ancient wall. So this is the walled part of the city right here next to the modern road. And you can see the little towers that they would have been able to defend from. And the walled part of the city goes like this. It goes up and around. So down here is the walled part of the city. The ancient wall can still be seen throughout parts of it. And it goes up there, and it comes back around this way, past their Colosseum. And the mountain is the northern border of their wall. And in the city of Philippi, a lot of things happen that we're going to look at. Number one, this is what's called a basilica. A basilica was where all of Roman legislation would happen. So whether it is someone suing someone, someone being tried for a crime, any kind of political or civilian life that was not just regular commerce would happen in the basilica. So this is likely where Paul, as we will see, would have been accused of bringing a foreign religion to the people of Philippi. Right here, this was what was their forum, a, a common thing in Rome. You've probably seen the big columns. It'll have a long road. They would have all of their pantheon of deities and their little niches and in their little Roman busts of their senators and their emperors all along the forum here. And then right over here is, this is the prison at Philippi. And so this is where Paul would have spent time as he was arrested and incarcerated. And let me see which way we need to go. Oh, it's right here. So that's, it's right on the other side of that wall. Let me see if there's a better. Oh, we're way too far away now. Oh, we're upside down, that's why. So this is Paul's, not Paul's prison, but a prison that Paul would have spent time in. It's right down. We're still on the wrong side of it. Okay, so right here, there's like, right there, on the other side of that wall, it's called a cistern prison. And now there's just a gate that blocks it, but you basically drop the prisoners down into a pit so they can't escape. And we'll see more of that later and why that's important. But let's go back out. So in Philippi here, oh, and also the Colosseum, because that's just a, a neat feature that Philippi has. Not all Roman cities had a Colosseum like this, but you can imagine being this huge and kind of sitting on the side of a mountain like that. Their entertainment, their theater, their gladiatorial, whatever they were doing, would have all been right there in that Colosseum, a hub of Philipp Philippian life. <laughs> I got confused there in my fills. Uh, okay, so on this... So as we go back to see both Neapolis here, down at the bottom, modern-day Kavala, 
and Philippi to the north, there was a major trade artery that ran east and west. So all across, to the, from the left all the way to the right, it was called the Via Ignatia. And the Via Ignatia spanned, I don't know, probably 1,000 or 1,200 miles going all the way past Rome to the east and all the way, way past Philippi to the west. This is what... Oh, oh, too far. So this is what the Via Ignatia looks like today. Rome built these roads so that their armies and their goods and their people could travel quickly, not having to hack through the brush, not having to climb up and down mountains, but they could have a straight path that would connect them to all of the other Roman cities. And here's the, the Via Ignatia, which is in red. And you can kind of see here, here's Neapolis, and here's Philippi, and here's Thessalonica, which Paul will also go to. Down here is Berea, it's not labeled. But each of those, Paul comes from over here and travels up, lands at Neapolis, goes up to Philippi, and then over to Thessalonica, down to Berea, and spends a lot of time throughout this part of the journey. So this is Paul's second missionary journey. He takes three primary missionary journeys, and this one, he kind of loops all the way around, way over here, back toward Jerusalem, kind of comes up and then down, takes a boat and sails, goes down into Corinth, and then sails back toward Jerusalem. So let's, um, oh, actually, before we go on, one other thing. So from this time in Philippi, as the different people have come and conquered Philippi, at this same time, about 800 miles to the east, turmoil is already starting to brew in another part of the world. Okay? Rome, at this time, is a republic. They had overthrown their former kings, and Rome is now voting to have senators represent them. These senators that have been confirmed by a vote were very leery of one person having too much power. They had been under a dictator, and they didn't want to be under a dictator anymore. So if one person gains too much power, the senators start freaking out, and they start getting a little twitchy, and Julius Caesar had too much power. So two men, two senators, Octavius and Brutus, plot an assassination, and they kill Julius Caesar with about 60 other senators. They were all in agreement that Julius Caesar had too much power. Not everybody was in agreement, and these senators all had patrons that supported them, and they each had kind of like their own army. So Brutus and Cassius took their armies and took the Via Ignatia back toward Philippi. So they left Rome after killing Caesar and went to Philippi. Mark Antony and Octavius were not part of the assassination attempt, and they followed with their armies Brutus and Cassius. 
So we have Brutus and Cassius, Octavius and Mark Antony, who have followed behind them. And all of this comes to a head at Philippi. And that's why this all comes back now. So at Philippi, these armies encounter each other. And if we look here, let's go back to north. If you'll notice this darker section right in the middle of the map, you see how it's darker there? This is a lowland marsh. King Philip of Macedonia tried to drain the marsh as much as he could, but it was still, there's so much water in these mountains, and it all comes down through the rivers, where we'll see Paul, and it settles into this marsh because there's a mountain range on the other side. So Brutus and Cassius were kind of up here to the north. So we have Brutus and Cassius, and they kind of held this defensive position right along the border of Philippi, and they forced Octavius and Mark Antony down to the south. So they would be down in the marsh, having to fight out of the marsh onto dry land, which was a, probably a good strategy. Well, it turns out that Brutus heard that they were going to lose the battle, and he heard that Cassius had died, and so Brutus kills himself. Turns out it wasn't true that Cassius had not died and they were not losing the battle. But Brutus was really the only one who understood any kind of military strategy between the two of them. So when Brutus kills himself, Cassius quickly loses the battle. Mark Antony and Octavius conquer Brutus and Cassius's army. They give Philippi as a result of being this special honored place where Rome has defeated its greatest enemy, the murderers of Caesar, they bestow upon Philippi, which is a Greek city, the designation of being a Roman colony. So all of Philippi now has the same rights and privileges that a Roman citizen, that a Roman city, that being in Italy itself will have. That's important here because Paul, Paul, Timothy, and Silas are in Philippi, and all of the Philippian people have all the rights and privileges that Roman citizens do. Okay, let's jump into Acts chapter 16 now. And this is about 90 years after the battle at Philippi, there were two of them, the battles at Philippi, the Roman Civil War. Okay, so coming back over, we're going to see Paul's journey here. Oh, sorry. That was the murder of Julius Caesar by some painter. I don't remember who. Okay, so here's Paul's military journey. It says in Acts Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 1, Paul went on to Derbe and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him, and Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was Greek. As they traveled through those towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. You might remember the council at Jerusalem was in Acts 15. There were Jewish Christians that were observing all of the law 
and there were non-Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, that were not observing the Jewish law because they were not Jewish. And so this council met together and tried to determine what do we need to require of these new Christian people who are not Jewish. And they decided in Acts 15, and then Paul is taking this information across the Christian world so that new Christian believers will know what they're required to do, how they're required to observe the Jewish law. So they took that information. Verse five, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. They, this is Paul, Timothy, and Silas, went throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. I'm gonna look up here on our map here. So, get a pin here. So here is Galatia, here's Phrygia. So they picked up Timothy at Derby, Lystra, Iconium. And they had been forbidden, verse six, by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Okay, so they came, Paul, Timothy, and Silas had come from the west. They had been traveling to the east, they picked up Timothy, and then they tried to go to Bithynia, but they were stopped. They wanted to go down to Asia, but they were stopped. So they kept going back toward Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, he immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here is now why Paul has gone all these places and we see that he's being stopped from going north, stopped from going south. He just came from the east, and so he's only going west, despite his own plans. Verse 11, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day leading to Neapolis. So stopped at the island, Samothrace, and then sailed up to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city in the district of Macedonia. A Roman colony because of the battle and a leading city because of all the riches and the gold. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city, uh, outside the city gate by a river where we expected to find a place of prayer. So we see here now that Paul, Timothy, and Silas would have normally gone to a synagogue. Almost exclusively where there was a synagogue, Paul would go and visit the synagogue to tell them, you know that the Old Testament, our scriptures have promised a Messiah will come. He has come, let me tell you about him. It was a great intro for Paul because he was Jewish, he knew the law, and he could convince the Jews that God has sent the Messiah that he promised. But here there was no synagogue. So instead of going to the synagogue, they went outside to find a place of prayer, which means that in Philippi, there were not 10 Jewish men. 
That's the minimum required to have a synagogue. So this was fully Greek and fully Roman. No Christian influence, no Jewish influence, just what Paul would have looked at as pagan people. So out, out by the river, we sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. That river is still visible today in Philippi. They've got kind of some stones and like some marble that's laid out and people still go and they're baptized in the river and they've got this big seating area and it's a really neat looking thing. It's just kind of like up and around and they actually have a city there named Lydia and that's where the baptisms are if you wanted to go and be baptized like Lydia was outside of Philippi by the river. But I want to notice, I want to note here that what Paul did when they went outside to find a place of prayer. The first thing that they did was they sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. This is Paul, Timothy, and Silas going out to look for a place of prayer. Regular guys just doing a regular thing. And they see people, but they don't just see the people, they see an opportunity for evangelism. Paul doesn't see the women and then just decide, let's go somewhere else so we can have privacy. Let's go somewhere else so we're not bothered by anybody else. They sit down within earshot and they speak to the women. Lydia here was a God-fearing person and the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Paul was not talking about the weather. Paul was not talking about the river. Paul was not talking about the history of Philippi. Paul was talking about something that led Lydia to open her heart and respond to what he was saying. Paul sat down and spoke the gospel to the women that were gathered there. As part of his regular life, he just went out and talked to somebody and shared the gospel with them. And in order for Paul to get here to where he is, He's following God's design, divine plan for him. God said, you can't go north, you can't go south, you've come from the east, and you're going west. So Paul goes west because God gave him a vision. Paul wanted to go to Asia, but God had other plans. Paul wanted to go to Bithynia, but God had other plans. Paul wanted a time of prayer, but God had other plans. And in those plans, Paul looked for an opportunity for evangelism. So Lydia can, uh, persuades them to stay with her. She's going to be a safe place for them to stay. But Paul is bold here with his gospel conversations. Now, we often aren't bold with our gospel conversations for a lot of reasons. I don't know what they'll think of me. If I say something, they might not like it. My family might alienate me. They don't want to hear it. My friends won't want to hang out with me. There's lots of reasons that we have to fear. But we're going to see next, Paul had really good reasons to fear. And he sat down 
and spoke to them and shared the gospel with them, even though he had good reasons to fear. Secondly, Paul here embraced God's plans. Paul had different plans, north and south, places that he wanted to go, ideas that he had. But God was evangelizing Europe. God was sending Paul to Europe to begin evangelizing that part of the world. Paul wanted to go north, which would have led him back toward Jerusalem. Paul wanted to go south, which would have led him back toward Derby and Lystra. But God had different plans, and Paul embraced those plans. Paul said, okay, not north, not south. We're going west where God has called. But that wasn't Paul's plan. That was God's plan. And we often have plans, right? And God has different plans. So when our plans don't match God's plans, embrace God's plans. You know, 2024 is a good opportunity for us to look back, to look forward. What has God done? What will God be doing? And if you set out and write down all of your plans today and say, these are my plans going into 2024, certainly God will change those plans. And when he does, we say, okay, God's plans are to evangelize Europe. God's plans are not my plans. God has a better divine plan for us than we have for him. So as Paul wants to go north, south, possibly back, God is telling Paul, we're going forward. You've come from Jerusalem, you've passed through all these cities, and we're still going forward. So if you are the kind of person who likes New Year's resolutions, if you say, you know, this is what my plans are, I would encourage you to take these as your New Year's resolutions. In 2024, I will commit my life fully to the Lord. In 2024, I will commit my life fully to the Lord and have faith in whatever plans he has. God has plans that we don't yet know. So when we commit to say, I will follow your divine plan faithfully, come what may, we know we are faithfully following what God has laid out. We are being obedient to God. As Paul gets into Philippians, there's no way to have joy outside of obedience to God. When we are obedient to God, when we faithfully follow his plans, joy is the natural result. The Bible says that righteousness leads to joy, that there is peace that comes from following God's plans. So if that's your New Year's resolutions, I'll follow God faithfully wherever he leads. I give you one caution, to be ready. Because in verse 16... Paul, following God's plans, encounters some opposition. Look at verse 16. Once, when we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, 
These men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, and they are servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed, and turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. When her owners realized that the hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, bringing them before the chief magistrates. And they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in stocks. So, why Paul would say to a demon-possessed girl who is simply saying, these men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. They are servants of the Most High God. Why that annoyed him? We don't really know. Some versions, translations will say they're proclaiming to you a way of salvation, which has led people to say that, you know, this is not a way, this is the way. But the Greek word translates the or a way isn't different, so we don't really know. Why Paul was annoyed, we're not sure. The point is, Paul had plans, and God brought about very different plans for him. Paul's plans, again, verse 16, as we were on our way to prayer. This is a decidedly Christian thing to do. Paul's saying, I am following what God has called me to do. I am going to pray. Paul, Silas, probably Timothy. Going to pray. And then this is where this happens. You'll notice also in verse 18 that Paul turns to the spirit. This demon-possessed girl has a spirit, and he turns to the spirit and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her right away. The power of the gospel in Paul's life was evident as he faithfully followed God's divine plan for him. In verse 21 Part of the objection that the Philippian people had, because they are now Roman, part of their objection was they are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. So this Greek-located city, now being a Roman city, they don't like Paul and Silas, and so they appeal to the Roman law, which has a lot of differences between what Rome believed, and what Christians believed. The first is inclusive versus exclusive. Rome had a pantheon of gods. When they conquered a new place, they would let those people worship their gods as long as they would also worship Caesar as the supreme deity. But they were free to do whatever they wanted. And then Paul and Silas come and say, no, no, no. Jesus says there's one way. There's not a bunch of different gods. That's not an option. We are very exclusive here with what we believe. There's not a lot of ways to heaven. There's one road. And so the Romans and the people of Philippi are saying, 
Okay, well, that's a good reason that we can hang these people up. The Romans also believed that their gods, their deities, were anthropomorphic, meaning they had human characteristics. They had human likeness. They would look like humans. They also had human emotions and human flaws. They could do the wrong things, and they could feel the wrong ways. They would fight amongst themselves because none of them were perfect in any way. The Romans also believed that one of the most important parts of religious worship was to be done in public because that was good for the state. If they worshiped all of these different gods, then one of them being worshiped might bestow favor on Rome. So they worshiped all of these various gods in public temples with public worship. And then Jesus comes and says, yeah, but now it's in your heart. This is a private matter between you and God that God has saved you because of what you have done through Christ. So they have these differences that are so far apart that Paul and Silas here are arrested. They don't really even get a trial. They're beaten and they're thrown in jail and told to guard carefully. So the jailer puts them in the inner part of the prison and puts them in stocks, which was a form of torture where their hands and feet would be bound and they'd be forced to sit in an uncomfortable position indefinitely. So all of that opposition has come to Paul and Silas. Now look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Again, all three of these sections start out with, Paul went out to pray, and Paul went out to pray. And Paul's in prison praying and singing, and of course the other prisoners are listening because they don't have anywhere else to go. Verse 26, Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains came loose. God's divine plan had taken Paul to evangelize Europe. God's divine plan had taken Paul outside the city wall to a river that he could find somewhere quiet to be. God's divine plan had put Lydia, a God-fearing woman, and other women around that Paul and Silas and Timothy could evangelize. God's divine plan had Lydia hear the good news, repent, and bring Paul and his friends in so they'd have somewhere to stay. God's divine plan sent Paul back out to pray. And then all of this, this is not what Paul would have chosen. Paul wanted to go north. Paul wanted to go south. Certainly Paul does not want to sit in prison. But at least God has delivered them. There's an earthquake. Paul stands up and leaves, right? Verse 27, when the jailer woke up and saw that the doors of the prison were standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself. The one thing that he was told to do was to guard them carefully. We have these people, Paul and Silas, the worst of all criminals because they have a different God. We've beaten them severely. We've put them in the worst part of the prison and guard them carefully. And here's this jailer like, 
I failed all around. And so he's just going to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But in verse 28, Paul calls out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights because it's dark. He doesn't even know who's there. He calls for lights and they bring in torches. They rush in and the jailer fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This jailer knew enough about Paul and Timothy, or Paul and Silas here, to know that they were also God-fearing people, that the gospel that they preached was a different gospel than he had ever heard. So he comes to them expecting that they would have run away because every rational person would have seen, I'm arrested for something I didn't do. I've been beaten. I'm in jail. There's an earthquake. God has obviously set me free. Let's get out of here real quick. But God's divine plan for Paul was different. So Paul stays. The jailer comes in and asks, what must I do to be saved? God's divine plan is just putting these people right in front of Paul, right? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And Paul is just harvesting the crop that God has already prepared. They said, that's Paul and Silas, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. They spoke the word of the Lord just like they did to Lydia and they're bold in their evangelism. Verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Plans that Paul would not have been able to foresee, plans that Paul would not have been able to plan, have all converged now for this jailer and for his family to hear the good news, to repent, to put their hope in Christ, and then to be baptized. And then the end of the story, verse 35. When daylight came, the chief magistrates sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, which they're already released. So come now and go in peace. So Paul could have just left in the middle of the night when the earthquake came and opened the doors, but he didn't. Paul could have left at any time when the jailer said, hey, come into my house, let me take care of you, but he didn't. And now the magistrates say, you're free to go. And Paul's already free to go. But now legally, he's also free to go. The jailer reported, oh, uh, verse 37. But Paul said to them, this is the magistrates sending it back through the jailer, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens. And they threw us in jail. And now they're trying to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. Paul's saying, you know what it means to be Roman citizens. I'm a Roman citizen. Part of Philippi now being occupied and being a Roman colony, 
is that they have all the rights and privileges of a Roman citizen, which is not to be beaten. They can appeal to Caesar if they don't like their trial. And they're being treated like not citizens of Rome. Why Paul didn't say that before, we don't know. But at this point, he decides, now I'm going to say, I'm a Roman citizen. So the magistrates hear these things, and the police reported, verse 38, these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them and escorted them from prison. They urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. So the police and the magistrates know that they're in hot water because they have violated the law. They've beaten Roman citizens, which is not what they're allowed to do, and later discovered that they've gone against the law. I think the reason that Paul is now saying this, though, is not so much for his own sake, because he's already free. But Paul's leaving. In the beginning, you know, he says, we stayed there a few days in that city, verse 12. They're not in Philippi for long. But there are Christians in Philippi. Lydia, the jailer, whomever else Paul might have talked to. And Paul wants to set a precedent here that the Christians have rights. So Paul's trying to stand up for the Christians that will be left in Philippi and still going to face opposition from the Romans. So Paul's trying to get them some safe harbor, even though he's gone, that they will be able to stand up and say, the God of the Bible is exclusive. That when they sit down somewhere to pray, when they speak the word of the Lord to someone sitting by a river or a jailer, when they choose to say, this is what I know of Jesus, they won't be arrested and beaten and thrown into the deepest part of the jail. At any point here, Paul could have just left. He doesn't leave. Even though the magistrates had come to him, because after verse 40, after leaving the jail, they went to Lydia's house. They said, leave the city. And Paul said, I've got a stop to make first. So they went to Lydia's house, probably explained the situation. You're Roman citizens. You have rights. You can fight the Roman rule. You can believe in Jesus. You can worship publicly. You can share the gospel. But a lot of those things will come with opposition. They'll come with problems. They'll come with people still trying to arrest you, still trying to flog you, still trying to put you on trial. And that's often what God's divine plan includes. If we say, I will follow God fully and commit to him fully, faithfully obeying wherever and whatever God calls me to do, there will be opposition. That's a given. If you face opposition for being a Christian, it's because you're being a Christian. If you never face opposition, it's probably because nobody knows you're a Christian. Paul here knows that in the light, in the light of day, he's a Christian. In the darkness of the jail, Paul's still a Christian. 
Spurgeon says, any fool can sing in the day. Songs in the night come only from God. When Paul's at his best in the daylight, he can sing praises to God. When Paul is locked up and in pain, Paul can sing praises to God. Paul knows that he is following God's divine plan for his life wherever it may take him. So after this, Paul's leaving Philippi. He goes back through Amphipolis, Apollonia, and go down through Berea, and then go all the way down to Thessalonica, pressing on to the West, continuing the plan that God had called him to do. And from this time where he leaves Philippi, about 10 or 15 years pass, Paul and the Philippian church write letters back and forth to one another. They share encouragement. They financially support Paul. And Philippi was an important city. It was right along the Via Ignatia, had lots of wealth. They were an important city in this time. And being an important city, being a colony of Rome, they were likely to put their confidence in the things that they could see. They were likely to put their confidence in their wealth and in their Roman citizenship. And part of Paul's letter is, your joy is in Christ. Your joy is not in everything you see. Your joy is not in everything you control or think you control. Your joy is only found in Christ. Having that plan is following God's design plan, divine plan. But there will be opposition. There always is. So Paul encourages the Philippians to have joy in the Lord, come what may. And next week, we'll look at Philippians 1, and we'll go through Philippians looking at what that means to have joy in the Lord. How our lives should be different when Christ is at the center of them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have knowledge that you have sent Christ to be our Savior. That he has loved us, that he has made a way for us, that while we were in the darkest parts of our own self prison of sin, that Christ has sent an earthquake, that he was the earthquake that redeemed us out of our own pit. We are thankful that we have a way of escape, that we have a way of salvation, that he has promised to take our sins, past, present, and future, and that he would be the bearer of those sins, that we wouldn't have to pay. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the example of Paul and Silas and Timothy to faithfully walk where you call them, to know that there will be opposition, to endure that opposition faithfully, and continue to proclaim the good news that you gave them. Lord, your plan is better than our plan, so we ask that you would give us the strength to be bold with our evangelism, to be bold to sit and share with people, and also to be faithful that when opposition comes, we stand our ground that you are the center of our lives, that we have no other hope, that we have no other peace, that we receive grace and mercy from nobody else, and that ultimately there's no joy to be found outside of Christ. 
We ask these things in his name. Amen.